Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Born in Calcutta, Raj Parr didn't drink a drop of wine until he was 20, but he made up for it in no time at all once he moved to the United States, rapidly becoming one of that country's best sommeliers with a legendary palate. In 2009, he began to make his own wine in a serious way and now farms 4.5 hectares in Cambria, near San Luis Obispo. Listen to his chat about the concept of balance in wine, his love of Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, and why he never stops asking questions. Hey Raj, how are you? I'm great, you? I'm really good, and it's wonderful to hear your voice after so long. It's been way too long. Where are you? Uh, I'm in a little coastal town in California called Cambria. I've never heard of it. Where is it? <laughs> well, it's in the middle of nowhere. It's uh, it's like 30 minutes from San Luis Obispo, which is uh, south of us, and then north of us is Big Sur. It's a small, small town on the coast also. Oh, Big Sur is beautiful. I mean, that's, that's one of the most beautiful places in California. I've driven past it on Highway 1. Yeah, so you definitely drove right by Cambria then. Oh, okay. I didn't notice. <laughs> but it, it sounds idyllic, right? No, it's it's perfect. I I moved here during the pandemic, and uh, yeah, it's it's amazing. I mean, we got we got to start with where you're from because it's a it's an unusual story because you were born in Calcutta. I mean, just tell us. I mean, I don't think wine was part of your life growing up, was it? No, not at all. In in Calcutta, you know, I, my parents, uh, the whole family was all into food, and I have I had cousins in restaurants, so my entire life was spent in the spent in the kitchen. You know, either my mother, my grandmother, if I'm in my restaurants with my cousins. And that's how I started. I got got into food. Then I went to culinary school in New York. And I, you know, I had wine. I had wine in England for the first time, actually, in Tunbridge Wells. My uncle lived there. Tell, tell us, do you, what did you have with your uncle? What did you drink you know, with him? You know, you know, he drank like Bordeaux. So I don't really remember like what Bordeaux it was, but he was drinking Bordeaux. And then, you know, what like the... There was no impactful wine as like I, it was. He drank like whatever Bordeaux he drank. I have no idea. So it wasn't a, like a light bulb moment. You thought, hey, love wine, amazing. No, no, it was. I was curious because I'm like, you know, as a kid in India, you're eating grapes all the time. You're like, hang on, these from grapes? Because you know, it wasn't like something. And I didn't drink alcohol at all. So you know, I was 20 years old, so I still wasn't drinking. And you know, and so when I had wine, I'm like, wow, this is interesting from grapes. And, so what did, what what did people drink in India in that in those days? Nothing or, or I mean, there's it's it's kind of a whiskey culture, isn't it? Beer a bit. Whiskey. And my 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 dad drank Johnny Johnny Walker yeah. Black Label. That was his like, and so you know, so I had no reference point of wine, and for the first time I had wine it was like '93. I was in uh, I was in Tumbridge Wells, and I was like, this is fascinating, and that's how I started and got curious, and then I moved to New York, and there was a wine class in my in the school i was in culinary arts in in new york and it was a wine class and that got me hooked and i kept just asking questions let's get on to that in a minute because i want to ask you a little bit more about the indian wine culture now because it's changed a lot since you were a kid does that mean that you know there are wineries now and um some half decent wines am i right in saying i mean you know certainly some stonal holland tells me they're good anyway mw 
No, the, no, the, there are there are some really interesting wines, and I think that the best vineyards haven't been planted yet. Yeah. Uh, and people are people are uh, definitely interested. I have a small a company in India which which imports wine. So, so we import uh, like Rouleau, Lafont, DRC, Tissot, mm. like all kinds of Gonon, mm. Savar. So we have we have a small portfolio of wines. And before the pandemic, it was like it was. You know, I used, to, I used to go once a year and do an event. I'm going to go back uh, this year. But I think the wine culture in in big the big not in Calcutta that much, but in Bombay, mm. it's massive. And and in Delhi, it's mm. like I mean, you can go to have a dinner with the collectors there and they'll bring the most serious bottles and you're like, whoa, this is, you could be in New York or London or Paris. But it's interesting you said the best vineyards haven't been planted. Where will they be planted? In the Himalayas, do you think? I think so. I think I think the biggest problem with, with, with uh, the vineyards there is the monsoons, you know? Mm. I mean, that's a lot of rain to hit the vineyards uh, and also the, how warm it is. Mm. I think in the Himalayas, uh, that's where the the right place. If I was younger, I would go back and do something there. But <laughs> it's too late. It's We're too late. Too old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. You said that food was your way in. You know, you studied as a chef in India, New York. I think you did an internship, didn't you, at Raffles in, in Singapore? I mean, what what made you change career paths and thought I don't want to be a chef? I don't want to don't want to go. Don't want to do what my uncle did. Your uncle was ran restaurants, didn't he? Yeah. No, my uncle didn't. My 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 cousins in Delhi did. And, uh, but I loved uh, restaurants. I loved cooking. I loved eating. Of course, wine, I was too young to drink wine. I, there was no wine around until I came to the UK. But I think that the culture that deep inside you is always hospitality because you're like hosting. My, like my grandfather used to have these lavish parties and mm. there was always something about hosting, you know, mm. and, and then food. And then, of course, then wine came later. And um, your big move really was to Rubicon Restaurant in San Francisco, wasn't it? I mean, how did that come about? Uh, I after I you know finished culinary arts, everyone expected me to be a chef, to be a cook, uh, and I said no, I wanted to study wine. So I sent like sixty five resumes around around the country, and everyone returned with a letter. Oh yeah, we want to hire you, but as a line cook, I'm like no, my letter says I want to be a sommelier. Mm -hmm. But also at that time in 1996, there were not many sommeliers in the 20s and with no training. So then I applied to Rubicon and and they hired me. So I started as a busboy. And then what does became, that mean? You just polishing glasses, are you? Or? Yeah, like like clearing dishes and running food, like a back server. Mm -hmm. And then it became a bar back, then became a front server. Mm -hmm. And then after that, became in six months, I became uh, assistant sommelier to Larry mm -hmm. Stone. So you you really started at the bottom, didn't you? I mean, that's tough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, because because there was no openings, and and no one's going to hire you know a twenty four year old mm. with no service industry experience. So yeah. And as you said, you started working with Larry Stone, very famous sommelier, and he became a bit of a mentor. I just wonder what what he taught you, really. Oh, everything. He's still my mentor. I, you know, I would not make any move in my life without checking with Larry. Hmm. I still uh, speak to him often and he's the best. I mean, he, he really taught me how to be a great sommelier, like listening to the guest and, you know, and he taught me blind tasting. I mean, he used to come in the middle of service and bring me like a quarter ounce of wine and give it to me. And what is this? And I'm like, oh, this is like, 89 Lynch Barge. No, you're wrong. It's 90 Lynch Barge. I'm like, oh. <laughs> right. So he, so he, he was so strict. He would never let you like, you know, and you're like a lot of blind tasting and then service really fast and got a chance to meet so many producers and taste, you know, all classic wines. I mean, 
It was, and it was a, like, you know, we used to drink all the wines you can't even find anymore, can't afford anymore for mm-hmm. sure. But back then, you know, as you know, wine was, wine, wine was much more easily accessible. These days it's uh, much harder. So you had this sort of accelerated education, really. In six months, you went from being a busboy clearing tables to suddenly you're identifying Lange you know, pretty closely to the vintage blind yeah. on the floor. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, he got me hooked on to that. And, and at that, then I'm like, you know what? There was one time in my life I'm like, I will never get a wine wrong. I will never miss a wine. Because I was so confident because I would taste so many wines. Mm. And we used to taste, you know, everything from young wine to old wine. Mm. And, and... That was something I really kind of focused on and blind tasting became like I was obsessed and I was like, I want to, I want everyone blind. <laughs> so t- t- I just want to know how, how does one practice blind tasting? Just doing it, I suppose. I guess, yeah, doing it, but also like you have to know, know the classics, but mm. you know, and, and fortunately the access was there because the wine list was, we had 2000 selections of wine from you know, the early 1900s and then all the way to young wine. And so, you know, it was, it was, we tasted wine. Of course, every bottle we serve, we tasted before we serve it. Mm. And, and then we, and I used to go for every, every, all the tastings in town. I used to go all the time. And we had a group of some of your friends who got together every Saturday mm. and we used to start blind tasting around 11 PM till 5 AM. It was like, every every saturday and that was like just a lot of and we drank like real wine it wasn't mm. like we were drinking we were, we were drinking all the best wines in the world mm. because that was once a week mm. like eight ten friends get together and we used to do this and end up at breakfast champagne <laughs> well as, and as you said in those days we could all afford to drink them i mean i remember buying buying 2000 first growths and thinking hey this is you know i can afford this i mean it was it was a it was a push but it wasn't like it is now i mean crazy uh, yeah and, and also rubicon and larry they were it was one of, it was the, the most important wine restaurant on the west coast mm. so we used to have like you know a pichon vertical from the 1800s Henri jaillet had his mm. retirement party mm. at at rubicon so we had like just cases and cases of jaillet back from 76 to at that time till the early 90s so you know you just had access to a lot of wines and every every time an important winemaker came to town they all came to say i to larry or have dinner or lunch there so it was really the people i met in three years and the wines i tasted were like till today is the, the most important part of my life yeah interesting i mean you went from there you went to fifth floor then you became the wine director for michael mina group in charge of 20 restaurants and in 2007 and i think this is where i first met you you helped to set up rn74 named after the road that runs through burgundy through the cook door um why was that place so revolutionary i mean it was a fantastic place to drink wine wasn't it i mean did you know it was great at the time or or just only looking back you think god that was an amazing place (laughs) you know after working service for so many years at like you know Michael Mina at the time was two-star Michelin. So it was like, it was, you know, I was always wearing a suit in the time my entire life. And I'm like, I want to open a restaurant where we are drinking the greatest wines in the world, but we're wearing jeans and just sneakers, you know? So the whole idea was no tablecloth and just have the best wines uh, served with delicious, simple food. You know, like it was like maybe elevated bistro food. And, and it was amazing because it was also a tough time in the in the banking world, the finance world. San Francisco, you know, was still, I mean, it still is uh, an important financial tech kind of uh, hub. Mm-hmm. So when we opened, uh, we opened in a pretty pretty hard time, mm-hmm. and everyone just loved it. They were loving because we had you know 
50 wines by the glass. We had, you know, an, an, an enormous wine cellar, over 100,000 bottles in the wine cellar. And it was like, we, we only priced it. We priced it like, you know, very affordable. Yeah, and, it was fun. And yeah. at, at the time, it was like still, you know, Burgundy was still, hasn't reached, mm-hmm. you know, whereas now. But slowly after five years, we realized that, I think we've sold all the sellers to buy the same wine again. We are like, we are buying it at twice what we were selling it for. And so we had to change, uh, change the idea a little bit. Yeah. I mean, 2002, you wrote a book, which I've got, and I've enjoyed very much. Uh, you co-wrote it with our mutual friend, great friend, Jordan Mackay, which is called Secrets of the Sommeliers. Now, I'd like to ask you, what's the best of advice you can give to someone dining and drinking in a new restaurant for the first time? What, how, how do you get the best out of a sommelier? I think is to first befriend the sommelier, to to connect with the sommelier because, you know, there's many different levels of sommelier. Some people are, you know, but, but I think that the first thing the guests or I would do, even when I go to a restaurant and I don't know a sommelier, I'll I'll talk to them and kind of see like, explain them what I want and what what, you know, what I what kind of wine I like, and then see if we connect the same way. But because they know everything. Someone here knows what's in the cellar, hmm. some secret bottles, some special bottles. And uh, I think many people might go to a restaurant and not even connect with a someone here. I think it's important to connect because you know, they know what's up hmm. and they know the food and they know the cellar. So, And if you get on the wrong side of them, they can give you a pretty shitty bottle of overpriced wine, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, you also have to be a little bit smarter. And, and that's why you're, you know, Either you connect with them instantly and you hit it off, or if you don't, then you're on your own. Yeah. <laughs> so you don't want to be stuck in the middle. I mean, I want to ask you from your side, I mean, because you're a very good one. You were a very good one. You're not doing it so much anymore. But what makes a really good sommelier and what makes a bad one? I think there's only one thing is listening. You mm-hmm. listen to your guests because sometimes when you are a sommelier, you only want to share the wines you like and you forget that you're here to serve the guest. Mm. So listen to the guests, stay humble, and give them what they want. Yeah, you can take them on a different different way, but you cannot like if they want like if they want to have a cabernet, you can't just give them a pinot noir. You, know, you can take them maybe towards a you know a, a richer wine. Yeah, say I don't have any cabernet. Ah, maybe I'll take you to you know Loire. I'll take you to the Rhone. To you know, but you can't tell someone, oh, I don't drink cabernet. Drink like Gamay. <laughs> So, you know, I mean, it, it, they, you have to kind of, you know, in the end, you got to please the guest. Mm. And is part of being a good sommelier buying, I mean, obviously it's buying wines, but is it is it is it searching out and buying wines before they become famous so that they're actually good value before, you know, as we talk about the stratospheric prices for some of these top wines? Is that part of the job? 100%. To stay ahead of the curve. Don't be an Instagram sommelier. Don't just copy somebody else's, you know, have have your own point of view, you know, and then you have to like really cater to what the restaurant you're in, you know, because sometimes you're at a, you know, a really fancy restaurant and you're having like, you know, simple wine or you're at a simple restaurant, you have very, really expensive wine. So you have to kind of have a balanced wine list. You have to train your staff. Very important because without that, you know, because you, you are only as good as your peers are mm-hmm. and you have to have. Uh, you know, a real program, a, you know, we used to have the most intense training program because the goal was to train everybody to be at your level. Mm-hmm. And that way it's just seamless because if you're busy at a table or you have a day off, you have someone there who is, who knows exactly what's happening. So education yeah. is a huge part of 
Mm. being a sommelier. It's not just how good you are. It's how good the people around you are. It's how good the team is, yeah. I mean, there's something I want to share with you because I don't know if this annoys you as well. It really annoys me when people overfill my glass, when they keep standing by the table and they keep topping up the glass. I just think, leave me alone. Do you find that? Oh, my God, for sure. You know, I I, I like, I like, I don't, I don't like keep filling my glass because I, I want to finish the glass or get closer and then, and because, you know, the, the aromas are different mm. when you're, mm. And yeah, I do not like being topped off all the time, though. No. Yeah. I sometimes say, oh, just leave the bottle here. I'll, I'll take care of it. I'm glad it pisses you off as well. <laughs> yeah, especially if you're at like a restaurant and they take the bottle away and put it in a Garridon. Yeah. And you're like, here, I'm like, okay, so <laughs> and the food is there. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. You want topping up, yeah. yeah. I mean, you've mentioned this already, your palate and how you trained it. You're known for having a brilliant palate. You're a very good blind taster. I mean, is it a gift, do you think, or is it expertise you've acquired? I mean, I love that Michelangelo quote. He once said, if people knew how hard I worked to get my mastery, it wouldn't seem so wonderful at all. And I think any of us who taste for a living and taste well, we've put in a lot of hours, right? But also, yeah. I mean, is it is it a gift? I think it probably is a bit, isn't it? I think, I think it's a gift, but I practice so hard. I practice, I mean, I don't talk about it too much because I now I don't practice that much, but to really think about a wine because you can have a glass of wine and just knock it back mm. and not think about it. But to really, I mean, you know, some, someone I looked up to Michael Broadbent, because when I, when I first met him, I was, I was, he always had a notebook and always took notes. And I was like, and from that, when I met him for the first time, I, I'm like, I'm never going to not take notes. Mm. So then you're, you, you're really kind of putting the wine you're tasting and you're using your head, your brain to put it on writing. And yeah, so it's it's important. It's it's a gift. Plus, it's something about memory. You have to, you know, remember. And you don't remember uh, unless you're taking notes. Yeah. I think, but, oh, you do have a smell memory, don't you? I mean, I, I find that. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, and of course, as we get older, it gets worse. So, yeah. And there's so many wines. And these days, so many wines taste like other wines. Mm-hmm. for different reasons mm-hmm. and uh yeah it's 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 really hard nowadays i mean i must say i don't blind taste that much but uh either it's out, i'm out of practice or there's so many wines that that taste like other wines well I, I think that's the problem as well i remember when i did the master wine you know in 2001 it was pretty easy to tell new world from old world with a few exceptions now i mean you know talking about look, your chardonnays for example i mean you know those could easily Burgundian. In fact, they taste more Burgundian than something's coming out of Chasseau Morachet these days, right? I mean, it, it's tricky, isn't it? It's 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 really tricky. Yeah, no, it it really is, and and it's fascinating. And uh, yeah, I want to ask you, what's the greatest wine you've ever had? I mean, people ask me that, and I, my answer is always, I've had loads of them. But is there one wine that you thought, God, that's amazing? And and, and the other question, of course, is, were you paying? Uh, yeah, definitely. So back in the day, so like you know, when when Burgundy was not that expensive. I remember buying a case of a mixed case of DRC seventy eight, mm. and I think I paid I think I paid like maybe twelve hundred dollars for it mm. of seventy eight DRCs. Uh, not there was no Romani Conti or Morache in it. So the the wine which has always been like was seventy eight Latash. It was a wine uh, which I've been lucky to enjoy many many times, and that wine is still my favorite wine as you know, I mean, it's it's hard it's hard to, you know, we, we drank old wine back then. Now it's like you know you can't find it, definitely can't afford it. No. But that wine definitely changed my life, and that was definitely something. You know, this is like first time I had it was probably like twenty years ago. 
But you've had it several times since. That's the point. Several times since, yeah. I haven't yeah. Really had it in the last, I don't know, five some five years or so. Because uh, someone, you know, it's good to have friends and and they 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 <laughs> they, they, they age wines and uh, we yeah. all need generous friends with deep sellers, right? Yeah, but yeah. I did but I did buy a seventy eight Latash myself several times. Yeah. Uh, when it was affordable. <laughs> well, respect, I must say. I mean, let's talk about your winemaking side because that's the kind of second half of your wine life, in a way, isn't it? When did you start to make wine yourself? I mean, you you were lots of you were good friends with lots of winemakers, and were you just sort of playing around and say, "Hey, I'll come and pull a few hoses and maybe make a barrel or yeah. two or something"? What happened? I, I mean, I definitely the playing around time was two thousand four, the first time, till two thousand and eight. So that time I was, you know, making some wine with Jim Clendenin and some other of friends. Of Klima, the late Jim Clendenin, great late Jim Clendenin, yeah. The, the great, uh, the best, yeah. uh, the man I miss every day. Mm. Um, and so, I, yeah, I, I I made some wines with him. And then 2009, Sashi, Mormon, and my partner, and myself, we started to really kind of, you know, try to make the style of wines we make now. And we started in 2009. So that was like, I think, the real vintage when when I, I would say I started to okay. make wine with a purpose. And just tell us a bit about Sashi, because he's a winemaker too, isn't he? Oh yeah, he yeah, he's he's taught me everything I know. He's an amazing winemaker and partner and, and dear dear friend. And uh he started uh at Ohio Vineyards and then he worked with Stopman and then we started Sandy and doing the Lakot together. And he is so smart and like really like innovative in a way and because he's very flexible. He's not just making wine the same way all the time. He's, he's really creative in the cellar. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been an amazing journey with him. But he's a trained winemaker. I mean, you're not. We've heard your path into wine was a very different one, but why? Into winemaking, right? <laughs> but he didn't go to school either. He learned on the job. He, he also went, he, he, was, a, he was a cook. So we both have the, and we both make wine uh, in a way that we are, you know, cooking, you know, so yeah. we, by taste, we don't, we are not very anatolic, you know, don't rely on analysis, but we rely on our taste. And that's the common thing we kind of, you know, yeah. And, I mean, Jim Clendenin was a great cook as well, wasn't he? I mean, you know, it was always good fun to go to his house. There was a party with dozens of bottles on the table and, you know, he was, he was generous and gregarious, but he was also a very good winemaker and a very had a very acute palate, didn't he? He was a great person to learn from, I think. Oh, great. And great cook and always curious, you know? Mm. That's one thing about being a winemaker is like the day you stop being curious, that's pretty much the end of your learning curve. Mm. So he was very curious and always tried different things and and just a great, great person to learn from. You said your first proper vintage was sort of 2009. Just tell us a bit about what the prevailing style was in California when you when you started out. Was it big wine? Was it? I mean, had the Parker era sort of come yeah. to an end? I mean, I say Parker, but it was kind of Parker and Wine Spectator and others that were backing pretty similar styles of wine, weren't they? Yeah, in California, there was definitely the predominant style was, you know, big, bold, lots of barrel, new barrels. And lots of extraction, so it wasn't. It wasn't like, uh, you know, there wasn't elegance. wasn't the word you'd use for a lot of wines coming out of California mm. in that era. Mm. I think it started changing after that. But two thousand five till two thousand and ten, it was definitely more unctuous and rich and juicy style. Now, the style has evolved. There's 
plenty of wines you can have from California, um, which are elegant and mm. focus more on balance and acidity and freshness. Mm. Yeah, I mean, because you deliberately set out to do something different, didn't you? It was a kind of counter blast or a counter culture, if you like. I mean, how would you describe your the winemaking style that you have with with Sashi? You know, again, coming back to Jim Clendenin, uh, we definitely kind of modeled our wines in in with freshness and balance. And so, of course, there are people, Mount Eden, Hanzel, uh, Calera, Obonclima, uh, Cupe. So they were like definitely people who are making the style of wines I love. And when we started making wine, our goal was to rely more on freshness and vibrancy. And, mm. and you know, I had... I mean, I, you know, I, I spend most of my traveling time in, in Europe, mm. especially in France. So, you know, uh, I was dear, dear, dear friends with a lot of producers there. So mm. there was definitely, you know, our compasses were set on making wines in the old world style and keeping wines that are fresh and using more whole cluster, using less new barrels, uh, relying all on natural yeast, uh, no fining, no filtration, all that kind of stuff. So it was... It was uh, the impact was definitely from drinking wines from yeah. some of the favorite producers, I mean, and those styles were much more common in the old world then, or in Europe really, than they were in California. I mean, I take your point that there were certainly exceptions, and the people that have been making, you know, Hansel, um, you know, elegant wines for for, for 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 decades. But it was something new, wasn't it? I just wonder how was it received by important American critics? Did they say this stuff is not ripe? Yeah, no, it wasn't well received. Um, it was, it was, it was very hard for us to sell wine in in California. I remember two thousand nine, ten, all the way to twenty fifteen. So we're talking of like good uh, four, so five, six vintages. So that's why we have such a strong presence in Europe. That's why you know we export more wine uh, than we sell in the U.S. But that's because we could sell it in the in California, the U.S. So I used to come to London like every other month, and you know, or I used to go, you know. So we sell wine in you know so many European countries and in Asia. It's because we couldn't sell, and and now of course we can sell all in the U.S. But yeah. we don't want to kind of you know change what we're doing already. So. Uh, that's why the, the the European presence is strong. I mean, was it easier to convince the public than than the wine writers, particularly in the states, or not? Or is that unfair? Uh, it was hard. They just they were like, "Oh, how come the wines are not? You know, how come they don't taste ripe? And you know, I don't see any vanilla. This tastes too thin. It has too much acid." So there was a lot of pushback, uh, and 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 it took uh, again took six years to kind of. Mm people to convince people that no this is like this is the style we like and we are not going to change it so we didn't have never changed we haven't changed anything in the wines of course a little bit in the vineyard minor tweaks but from 2009 to what you do today it's pretty much the same the same thing i mean out of this you know new style if you like or, or rediscovery of a european style this movement called pursuit of balance was born and you were very important in that J- just tell us a little bit about how it was born what it achieved and, and and why it ended i think it was a shame that it came to an end in a way so um i can tell you why it ended so me and jasmine hirsch she has just started her, her with, the, with the father and i was starting sandy and and we, we, we were talking about let's do a tasting of of producers who make wine like us hmm. and i started writing names on this back of a napkin around 74 and we are like we stopped at like eight and I'm like, that's funny that's that's it so we decided let's do a tasting i think the first tasting we kind of i think we have maybe like 14 or 16 producers total 
And it was supposed to be a tasting only for the producers. Mm -hmm. But then we had to go rent glasses and we had a space. We made it a public tasting. And from that day onwards, I got so much hate mail because not being being included in this tasting. But this tasting was for us to discuss how can we, you know, you know, promote the style of wines we make because it was a minority. When was that that tasting? What was what what year? That was in two thousand and ten, I think. Yeah. Same time. And, yeah. Yeah, and, and and we did a first tasting in San Francisco, and then there was a lot of like people who were really excited, but there was a lot of people who were like really mad. Mm-hmm. You know, they all you're drawing a you know a line in the sand. California is supposed to be ripe and big and. And I'm like, no, it doesn't have to be. You can you can make ripe wine, but you can also make balanced wine. So that's how it started. Uh, and it was great. We did events in, of course, in London, big supporters in London. Uh, we did events in Japan. We did events you know, all over the U.S. And then we saw more and more people kind of accepting the style. And at one point, it just became like, too big, and it was me and Jasmine. It was two of us, and we did this for it was a it was a nonprofit organization. It wasn't like we took money out of the business for ourselves. So we decided to stop it. We like it's just it's so much, and now we see there's like we started with what sixteen producers, and now there's like we get so many people want to join us over fifty, and we just thought that this okay now it has to you know this is too much it's too much to do. It's done its job in a way, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we started something, and and you know this was. Because people thought that this was some kind of, uh, we had a, a a goal to like, you know, demonize other people and celebrate. It wasn't that. It was nothing about, it was all about accepting what California has to offer. Interesting. And, and I think it became a little bit too contentious in the end. And yeah. I was just tired of like. Fighting. You know, yeah, because <laughs> it, it wasn't a war. It was just like friendship. It was like love. It's like vineyards. It's wine. Yeah. It's, it's not, I'm not here to like tell someone you do the wrong thing. That's not my job. Let's talk about vineyards because you've got your own vineyard now, haven't you? Post-pandemic, you've become much more of a, of a of a vineyard. Just tell us a little bit about the vineyard and maybe tell us about the other brands you have just so, so we understand which different brands and which one comes from your vines. Yeah, so so me and Sashi, uh, we started Sandy in 2009. Uh, we planted the vineyards for Domaine de la Côte uh, starting in 07 and the first one was 2011. They both are focused and based in Lompoc in the Santa Rita Hills on the on the western part of Santa Barbara County. The style of wines we love, you know, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. And then we have an estate up in uh, Oregon in the Eolamity Hills called Evening Land based on a vineyard called Seven Springs, a historic vineyard. And so these three are like what we've built starting from 2009. And the pandemic came along and I didn't know what I was going to do. And, and we stopped traveling. All of us had different things to deal with. And I had never farmed my own vineyard. And I decided to personally lease this property, which we were working with um, for Sandy. And then I kind of decided to start grafting different varieties. It was It's in a small town called Cambria, where I live. And I have, uh, of course, we have Little Chardonnay Pinot. We have Gamay, Trousseau, Pulsard, Savigna, Pink Chardonnay, Mondus, Granger, Altes, um, Jacquer. Mm. Uh, so we have all kinds of different things. Uh, I farmed it alone uh, starting from 2020. Uh, I'm going to hire my first person this year to help me. Uh, we do regenerative farming. So we have sheep and chickens and dogs. And we have put on an apple orchard. We're going to start uh, 
growing vegetables and we have you know we have lots of cows in the property it's it's uh four and a half hectares the whole property is um 450 hectares but just the vineyards is four and a half and uh, i'm very happy and stay in one place and learn a whole new uh part of life and um, what's that brand called feel and farm field and farm fantastic e-h-e-l-a-n feeling that's the oh, family oh feeling yeah. farm yeah yeah okay. that's that's the family that moved there in 1851 yeah and they planted the vineyards it's all own rooted was owned with a pinot noir and i grafted above that and uh yeah so of course i had to i had to put their name because it's uh you know i'm a temporary uh, keeper of of the property but i like that idea yeah. They've had it for so long. So and, and you're basically Savoie Jura Burgundy grapes, really, mostly, yeah? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, sounds fun. But let's talk a little bit about Pinot Noir and Chardonnay because they've always been your main focus, haven't they? Hundred mm-hmm. percent. The definitely. I mean, I was obsessed with my epiphany wine was um eighty-six Ravenon Le Clos. Uh I was you know, so you know, I very early on when I started Rubicon, I started focusing on Burgundy and traveling to Burgundy. And you know, I have many, many dear friends uh, who have taught me along the way. You know, Jean Marc Rouleau, who's a mentor and a dear friend, Jeremy Sess, Dujac, a mentor and dear friend. So, you know, uh, drinking wine, spending time in Burgundy definitely kind of got me thinking about wine and you know. After years of tasting wine in California, we decided to focus on Santa Rita Hills, which I think is one of the most important and um, will be in time after we are gone that it'll be a special place for Chardonnay in the world. You think it's not recognized as being such already? I don't think so. I think, I think you know, it's, it's a small appellation and there are still many producers making a different style of wine. But I think, I think... Um, in time, I think you know it will be because you know. Also, we are in the in the South Central Coast, so it's not it's not like being you know Napa Sonoma is still much more um, you know much more well known. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, but we are trying. You know, I think I think with the help of people around us and even uh, you know some some Burgundians coming to our region and making some wine, there's definitely more interest. But you know, to be recognized. Um, you know, it takes it takes time, and they're on a rush. But we are happy to be a part of such an amazing place, and and the soils are special. The place where it is when you when you drive through it, it's it's definitely unique. You know, it's it's not just another one great region. Senator Hills is is special, isn't it? Yeah. You know, the soil, you know, have sea yeah. and you have, you know, you you have some very interesting, you know, interesting soils, and it's also like the summers are really cool and. And you know, so you know, you can have the acidity. There's, you know, we are never worried about acidity. We worry about how much acidity. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask you: Do you think there's 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 less of an inferiority inferiority complex vis-a-vis Burgundy in the New World than there was maybe ten years ago? I mean, can can these top wines from the states and New Zealand and Australia and Chile and Argentina can can they compete with Burgundy? I mean, you know, I I I never want to uh, disrespect Burgundy. Mm. Uh, Burgundy is always, you know, on the mantle, but I think other places in the world, you know, Otago and Santa Rita Hills and Sonoma Coast and South Africa, I mean, there's so many places I think are trying to find a niche. And I think if you stay true to place Mm -hmm. and don't mess with the wine too much, 
you will find that niche. You know, if you have wines from the Senator Hills, they are salty. You know, if you yeah. they're salty. You, you don't find that many salty wines in Burgundy. Mm-hmm. It's different. It's it's a continental climate. Here's maritime mm-hmm. climate. So if I think people in parts of you know in, in Patagonia, for example, as Omar makes wine with Piero, mm-hmm. you know, there's many places where where you can find an authentic profile. And I think that that our goal is to do that where we are and uh and as you know and and embrace other other people other friends and peers who are trying to do the same thing yeah i'm glad you mentioned glad you mentioned south africa because i'll get killed if i didn't mention south africa in the pinot noir six there's some great things coming out of the hebelanada valley especially and elgin as well yeah no i mean i we don't we don't see a lot of it here in in california or maybe we just miss it but i try and when i when i come to london I always try to find some some of the new stuff. It's yeah. it's really I mean it's it's the whole world of wine is 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 at this time it's the best wines made in the world. And so, yeah, so this there's you know there's so many exciting wines coming even from like Chile, Argentina. Mm. No, it's, it's it's just endless and mm. and and I think that I just love that the community is getting smaller and mm. people are kind of you know meeting up and traveling and tasting and people like you have you know have promoted the wines cuz it's so easy to just stick with the classics mm. and that's classics are classics because that's what they've done that for so long mm. but it's exciting to see things happening outside yeah i always find it more exciting to do that because you're discovering new stuff really but listen final question you're a very busy man although you're not quite as busy as you were uh, certainly in terms of travel yeah you're not traveling as much you're based in a farm just tell us what your other interests are outside wine do you still like to cook for example I love cooking. I, I love it. I mean, my big goal of 2023 is to grow all my own vegetables and herbs. And I and I love, yeah, I mean, cooking. We, we, you know, we eat everything local. We have the oceans right here. So we have great seafood. We have some great farms. I cooked a rabbit yesterday from a farm not far away. And it's just amazing. I love cooking. It's, it's, it's something, you're know, living in a small town. There's not that many restaurants. So cooking is definitely... Something I look forward to every every evening. And do you miss being a sommelier ever? No, I I go to bed by I, I go to bed at like nine nine thirty ten on the latest. So no, I <laughs> I love it. I, I get eight hours sleep every night. I wake up early. I work with nature. Yeah, I do not miss working in the restaurant. It sounds idyllic. It's perfect. <laughs> fantastic. Listen, it's been great to talk to you. That's a perfect note on which to end, a fantastic note on which to end. Um, lovely to talk to you. And I hope to see you very soon in London, California, Burgundy, who knows, somewhere around the world over a good bottle of Pinot Noir. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Sam. Thank see you, you, my friend. Take care. Fascinating man, Raj, who's made a significant contribution to the wine scenes in California and Oregon. Boy, do I miss RN74. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is the viticulturist Prue Henschke from the Eden Valley in Australia. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week. <laughs>